text, and we are going to start chapter 25, sort of bring you up to speed for those of you who don't know the story. Paul has gone back to Jerusalem with the intention of being there for Shavuot. He meets with the Council of Jerusalem, and they tell him about the rumors that have been floating around about how he's teaching against the law of Moses and teaching people that they don't have to circumcise their children and all that kind of stuff. He denies it, and they say that in order to prove that you're doing it right, there's a bunch of guys that are going to clear a Nazarite vow. You go with them and get purified and so forth, and then people will see that you are walking orderly yourself. So he does that and is arrested. In fact, he goes at the beginning of the week and then starts his week of purification, and that all goes fine. And then when he comes back at the end of the week to finally clear the vow and sacrifice, that's when the riot occurs and the Romans arrest him. And he then declares that he is a Roman citizen. And in that sense, he's under the protection of Rome. So they transport him up to Caesarea, where Felix is the governor. Felix can't find anything wrong with him and holds him for a while, and then the governor changes, and so Festus then becomes governor. And one of the things that will become clear as we're going through a couple of chapters I hope to get through tonight, the temple authorities will come up to Caesarea and ask to have Paul delivered to them. And Paul, not being a dummy, knows that if he falls into their hands, he will be killed. So his appeal to Caesar is by way of putting himself under Roman protection, sort of protective custody, if you will. And you will see this a couple of times where they'll ask to have him sent down, and Paul will say, no, don't do that, because I haven't done anything wrong, but that isn't going to stop him. You know, sort of like the Washington Press Corps. You know, they're having a feeding frenzy right now. In fact, it's kind of a good example the Washington Post prints what apparently is a false story about Trump leaking classified information to the Russians. And just the whole media empire explodes. Well, thing one is Trump in his office as president has the ultimate of authority to decide what information to share with whom for diplomatic purposes of the United States. In other words, I'm the chief diplomat of the United States. I'm the chief executive officer of the United States. I've determined that it's in the United States' best interest to share this with X, so it's legal, just by definition. And then you have his aides come out and say, it didn't happen. But that hasn't stopped the press. And I bring that up because that's what's going on with the temple authorities. If you watch the D.C. feeding frenzy right now and the derangement that they have trying to get President Trump, you have a perfect insight into what the temple authorities are trying to do with Paul. It was the Asian Jews who had come down for the Feast of Shavuot who got the ball rolling. But what you're seeing here is exactly what you're seeing today in Washington. So now... We've changed governors, 
Felix is out, Festus is in. So now we're in chapter 25. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priest and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. And remember, we had a whole group of people that took a vow not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. By this time, these guys are getting a bit gaunt. So I don't know if they're even still alive, (laughs) or they've been released from their vow or whatever. But the idea here is bring him into our jurisdiction. And the reason on its face is that we want to try him here. But in fact, they're not planning to try him at all. They're just going to lynch him. Verse 4. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. So, this is obviously not Festus's first time to the rodeo. He recognizes that something is up, or if nothing else, he recognizes that Paul is in Roman custody, and it is not appropriate to release him to Jewish custody without knowing more than what's going on. See, because Festus at this point has not spoken to Paul, and all he's got is one side of the story. You know, Roman provincial governors are not stupid people, typically, so I, I suspect that he either recognizes that something's going on, or even if he doesn't, he is wise enough to recognize they only heard one side of the story, and he probably needs to go find out the whole story before he does anything rash like turn Paul over to him. So verse 6. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul brought. Verse 7. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? So the question is, The offense happened in Jerusalem. That's where the crime was, if there's a crime. So, I, Festus, the governor, am willing to take you, Paul, to Jerusalem, where all the witnesses are, and I will sit down there and I will hold court in Jerusalem, and we'll get this all straightened out. Verse 10. But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourselves know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Obviously, Paul knows what's going on. Because remember, when Paul was taken from Jerusalem to Caesarea, he was taken in the dead of night, and they had a short battalion of Roman soldiers to include cavalry with him. So the whole getting out of Jerusalem required 
a military operation in the dead of night to avoid bloodshed and so forth. And the Romans knew what they were dealing with, so they didn't just send a squad of men, you know, half a dozen guys to you know, do prisoner transport north. They sent almost a battalion of men. So they were fully aware of how unpleasant the situation could get. Paul, of course, knows the same thing, and he knows that if he goes to Jerusalem, even under protection of the Roman governor, the amount of manpower that the temple authorities could throw at him is probably sufficient to overwhelm whatever Roman guard was there. So the chances are really good that he wouldn't even make it to Jerusalem. And if he did, then you'd have this uh, replay of the same riots, and it isn't at all clear that the Romans would be able to protect him. So what he's saying is, I am in protective custody up here in a Roman city and in a Roman garrison, and that's where I would just as soon stay. And if you want to resolve this case, O Festus, what I'm saying to you is I appeal above your head to have my case judged by the emperor, so I am now taking my jurisdiction out of your hands. That's sort of what's going on with this little play. So verse 12, Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. So sort of reading between the lines here, Festus recognizes that this is a hot potato, and there isn't anything short of Paul's death that is going to calm the situation down. So has anybody seen the movie Terminal? It's a really cute movie. Tom Hanks is a traveler from the mythological place of Krakosnia, which is obviously somewhere in the Caucasus Mountains. And he's traveling to New York, lands in New York, and Krakosnia has a coup. So Krakosnia ceases to exist for a period of time, so his passport is no good. He can't be sent back to Krakosnia because there's a revolution going on. He can't be turned loose into New York because his passport's no longer valid. So he camps out in the airport for months and months. But the play is the airport administrator is one of these guys that is a bureaucrat's bureaucrat, has memorized all the regulations, knows them all by heart, and there is no regulation that allows him to get rid of this guy. And he tries everything. He uh, tries starving him out. Uh, one of the things that Hanks discovers is if you return one of these little baggage trolleys, you get a quarter. So he goes around the airport collecting baggage trolleys and shoving them in, the, and he gets a quarter. I mean, that's how he buys hamburgers and stuff like that to live. So the airport administrator hires a guy to pick up all of the baggage carts to take his quarters away, hoping that this guy will do something, you know, make a break for it, do something, get out of my hair. They leave the doors unguarded for a period. It's just really funny. But as I read this with Festus, I sort of think of that poor airport administrator. Uh, what do I do with this guy? Ah, he's appealed to Rome. I can send him to Rome, and he will not be my problem anymore. I recommend the movie, by the way. It's very cute. So anyway, we're all the way down to 13 now. Verse 13. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. All right. He is Herod's grandson. 
So he is the tetrarch of Idumea. And Herod, of course, is the guy that tried to kill Yeshua when he was a toddler. So he lived in this area all his life. He grew up in Israel. He was obviously a member of the royal court. So he knows Israel. He knows Jews. As opposed to Festus, who's a Roman. So Festus comes in, and certainly I'm sure he's received a briefing about what's going on in the country. And he's not stupid, but he didn't grow up there. Whereas Agrippa did. 13 again. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived in Caesarea and greeted Festus. So they've come down to greet the new governor. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had a certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Yeshua who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. What Festus is doing here is he's saying, I got no idea what to do with this guy. I don't even really understand the charges against him. And so he's talking to Agrippa, who is going up in the region. So that's sort of how the thing comes before Agrippa. I think it's a case of Felix, I don't know what to do with this guy. You lived here all your life. Give me some insight. It's that kind of a conversation. 22. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. So this is turned into a, a show. So 23 again. So the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving of death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seemed to be unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Festus is seeing Agrippa as, help me out with this guy. I have no idea what, what to say. I'm sending him off to Rome. As near as I can tell, there's no reason to put him to death. But he wants to go to Rome. 
and I really feel like I have some charges before I strap him to a centurion and send him off to Rome. So chapter 26. So Agrippus said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So what Paul is saying is obviously, you grew up here, you know what's going on. Furthermore, he mentions that the Jews are a contentious sectarian lot. Because we know at the time of Yeshua and thereafter there were half a dozen major sects within Judaism. And they didn't like each other. The Essenes or whoever they were at Qumran wouldn't go up to Jerusalem because they figured that the Pharisees defiled the place. It's that kind of acrimony among them. So to have this guy Paul dropped in there and he's saying, okay, what we got going on here is one of the internal catfights of the Jews. And you understand the politics here, so it's really good that you're here because you can understand what I'm talking about. Verse 4, my manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. For this hope I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So what he's saying is, I am devout. I have not violated any laws either of Moses or of the prophets or of the temple, I am a Torah keeper. And the reason I'm here is because I am testifying that Yeshua was raised from the dead. That's the controversy we got here. And that's why I'm standing here. That's why they're trying to kill me. Furthermore, the idea that someone would be raised from the dead is something that everybody who studies the scriptures should understand plainly. In other words, he's saying, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? In other words, what is about this is controversial? And he's saying, we all know the scriptures, and I'm not saying anything that isn't scriptural here. Verse 9, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Yeshua of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem, not only locking up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So what he's saying is, I used to be one of these guys that's now trying to kill me. And I was zealous about it. And by the way, his testimony there that I used to be one of these guys that's trying to kill me, gives you some insight into Paul's understanding of what's going to happen to him if he goes back to Jerusalem. That's exactly why he's appealing to Caesar, because he absolutely knows that people, just like he used to be, will kill him. So verse 12, In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. 
At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone about me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Yeshua, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So that's his commission. 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, for I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. In 21. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. So there's two things that are a problem as far as the Sadducees are concerned. Thing one that's a problem is resurrection from the dead. So his assertion that he has seen the resurrected Yeshua is a problem for the Sadducees. The second thing is that he has received a visitation from a heavenly being because the Sadducees also don't believe in angels. So the fact that this guy is saying, I received a vision from the risen Lord is doubly problematic to these guys. And it puts him firmly outside of his former camp. Because remember, he was being sent to persecute those who had a testimony of the resurrection of Yeshua. 22. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Messiah must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So he is asserting that he has done nothing that is not scriptural. 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, are you out of your mind? Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. So he's saying, all right, you dumb Roman Gentile, you don't know nothing, but as far as Agrippa is concerned, I am speaking stuff that we both understand. And I am speaking very rationally. I am not doing anything weird or wild. Verse 26 now. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Agrippa is the king of Judea. So the crucifixion and all the events with the resurrection and so forth would have happened in his personal knowledge. So Paul is telling him, hey, you know this all happened. And furthermore, it wasn't done in a corner, which is to say it wasn't secret. Everybody knew about it. There's no way you can say you don't know what I'm saying here. 
27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man has done nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar. So the reason that Paul has appealed to Caesar is he needs to get out of town. The last thing that Paul wants is to be set free. Furthermore, Yeshua has told him that he's going to Rome. So the fact that he's going to Rome is not a surprise to him. But even if Yeshua hadn't told him he's going to Rome, he doesn't want to be set free because if he does, his shelf life isn't going to be very long. All right, we're going to get on the sailing trip. So I'm going to go down to the end of verse 12 in chapter 27, which is sort of going to get out on the boat and out to sea, but not into the storm yet because going through the storm is worth more than just five minutes. So by the time we get there, there'll be five or ten minutes left, and that isn't really enough time to deal with the storm. So what I'd like to do is get him out to sea, and next time we'll we'll do the storm. So chapter 27. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Now notice that the pronouns have changed again. Now, when it was decided that we should sail for Italy. So we here now includes Luke. I just wanted you to notice that the pronoun has shifted there. When it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramithium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. So what they're going to do, they're going to leave from Caesarea, which is on the Mediterranean coast. They're going to head north, and as you go north, what happens is Turkey then juts out to the west. So what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to take a left turn and go around Cyprus, and they'll wind up going around Crete before they hit the storm. Verse 3. The next day we put in at Sidon, so they go from Caesarea just straight up the coast to Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. So one of the things that's fairly obvious is the centurion, Julius, is aware that he is escorting Paul, and I think he is also aware that Festus got no idea what the charges are. (laughs) So this is not somebody that he has to worry about escaping or knifing him in the back or anything like that. Paul is very much a white-collar criminal, so he gets treated very well and very leniently. So verse 3 again. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly, and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, he sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, 
we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. So Alexandria is straight south of Myrna and Lycia, which are on the bottom west coast of what is now Turkey. Alexandria is at the Nile River in Egypt. So it's a straight shot north from Alexandria to where they pick up the ship. So this ship has gone from Egypt up to the southwest corner of Turkey and is about to take a left turn and head to Italy. So they transship across and they get on this new ship. Verse 7. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty at Cnidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salome, coasting along it. With difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. I think the lee side of Crete is to the south, but I'm not sure of that. So that you've got these two major islands in the Mediterranean, got lots of major islands in the Mediterranean. But the two big ones are Cyprus and Crete. Cyprus is sort of in the tuck for Turkey and the Asian Peninsula go like this. You've got Cyprus, and then to the west of there, you've got Crete. And those are both large islands. And this is where I wanted to get to. Verse 9. Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. So they are in the fall. Yom Kippur is past. And remember Paul, when he was going to Jerusalem, was trying to get there in time for Shavuot. It is now two and a half years later. He's in Caesarea for two years. So he got there in time for Shavuot, which of course is about June, May or June. And he's in there for two years. And it's now two years later after Yom Kippur. So two and a third years after he set out for Jerusalem. And it is my understanding, without any personal knowledge, that sailing in the Mediterranean in the winter is a perilous thing, or was a perilous thing when you were doing wooden sailing ships. Not so perilous, I suppose, if you have an aircraft carrier, but for the ships they had in that day, if you're sailing at that time of the year, you're really pushing your luck, because the weather then gets dicey. So what Paul is saying here is, all right, we got this thing parked. And if we go now, I perceive, and he doesn't say I perceive by what mechanism. He will later on, when the ship is about to be wrecked, he will in fact tell them that he has received information from God that this is what they're supposed to do. I suspect he has also received information from God that it's a really bad idea to set out right now. But he doesn't say that here. He simply says, dumb idea. So verse 11. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they would reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. 
So what they've done is they've left Asia Minor. They were at Myra in Lycia, where they picked up this new ship. The ship turned left and is heading straight west and is having real trouble getting anywhere. It is not the case that they are clipping along at a great rate. They're going very slowly. The winds are adverse. The seas are adverse. Everything is adverse. But they're stuck in a small port, and they judge that the port is just not suitable to spend the winter in because they are going to have to spend the winter somewhere. Everybody understands that we need to hold up for the winter because sailing from Crete all the way to Italy at this time of the year is a no-go. So what the pilot and the owner of the ship recommend is we head for the next major port, and that's where we'll spend the winter. Paul says, bad idea, and of course Paul's going to turn out to be right. So with that, I'm going to stop. 